Okay, uh, I have extra copies. That probably isn't necessary. Does anybody remember which prayer we read last? These were Babylonian prayers we were in, and we're in the document entitled Wrath as a Divine Characteristic. I have the great hymn to Nabu. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay, great hymn to Nabu. You would expect a scribal god, but Nabu is the god of the scribal arts. And you would expect a scribal god not to be very angry. I think I talked about this a little bit last week, but I'm going to repeat it. I always thought Nabu would be the calmest, uh, least ferocious deity of the ancient Near East. But actually, he appears to uh, almost one-up Marduk in terms of anger. Marduk is his dad. If you want to talk about the pantheon and, and his and its order. We're in that document, Bianca, on uh, the fourth page, and we're on the great hymn to Nabu. In order to understand the background behind Nabu, it's helpful. You have to understand the background of the scribal arts. If you, if your father, it would be if your father decided you would become a scribe, and it, only in rare periods did women do that. Uh, but if your father described you were a son and, and your father decided that you should be a scribe, uh, he would send you to the scribal schools. The, the master of the scribal schools, the teacher, was, in, by modern standards, abusive. He had a long whip or stick, I guess a long stick, and he was prepared to come down on your hands if you goofed up on your tablet. And you had to write very quickly because tablets dried. And once they dried, you couldn't write. So these tablets were very moist uh, to begin with. And um, I imagine they had little little vessels of water that you could keep wetting uh, because we know that they would erase the tablets if they goofed up. They had to erase it and start completely over. And, and you understand that writing cuneiform is not easy. It's a syllabic language which means each sign represents a syllable, and, and occasionally you have signs that represent logograms, uh, and you have to know those logograms. And for an Akkadian person, which by the time you have Nabu worship, you're dealing with uh, possibly the late Assyrian period, but more likely the Neo-Babylonian period. So in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. So if, by the time you have Nabu worship, uh, you have a mixture of cuneiform that is syllabic and cuneiform that is logographic. And the logographic logograms come all the way back from Sumerian, which is why the Neo-Babylonian period over a thousand years before. But it's, it's lived through all those ages and, and re- been retained by the scribes. So, but it's not your daily language. In your daily language, I don't think you would be speaking too much logographic type, types of words. So it was very, very difficult. And then on top of that, to have an abusive master who was constantly hitting your knuckles or, or doing something rather ferocious, uh, it would give you the impression that not only was your master angry, but the god of that art... The scribal god, Dabu, was angry as well. And I think that's possibly where it comes from. 
So um, who shall we begin with? Christina, why don't you read, uh, this is not terribly long, why don't you read the whole prayer first? This is basically a prayer of appeasement to Nabu, who is perceived to be angry. Here are some fragmentary lines. O Nabu, who, the anxious, like A, he has turned, your anger, your raging yoke, you, abundance, you release the yield. O Lord, in your fire and your pitilessness, of the gods you inspect Anshar, O Nabu, in your fire and your pitilessness, of the gods you inspect Anshar, O excellent Lord, be calm at once. May your features relax, have pity. O excellent Nabu, be calm at once. May your features relax, have pity. Wise one, master of the literate arts. O furious Lord, you are angry with your servant. Want and misery have beset him. O furious Nabu, you are angry with your servant. Want and misery have beset him. Omnipotent Lord, let iniquity be erased. O swift to forgive, let foul crime be forgiven. Omnipotent Nabu, let iniquity be erased. O swift to forgive, let foul crime be forgiven. Without your consent, O Nabu, there can be no forgiveness, unless by you my iniquity and crime will not be absolved. Your servant has done wrong, and you continue to turn away from him in anger. In your, you cast down. The burrowing beetle, a hostile deity. The prayer continues with the depiction of various plagues the petitioner suffers from. You discipline your servant. Now give him a vent to breathe through. Incline your face to him. Turn your head towards him. O Nabu, you discipline your servant. Now give him a vent to breathe through. Incline your face to him. Turn your head towards him. Produce a substitute, someone to die in his stead, and let him find self-preservation. So he's suffering various plagues. And that means that Nabu is angry. What do you think? Any questions or comments on this? Kind of bipolar, right? Or at least you... Yeah. Uh, yeah. Angry, faith. but forgiving. Angry, oh, angry quick to one forgive. Oh, swift to forgive. Oh. Yeah. 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 Very bipolar. Or a little schizophrenic, maybe. It's, uh, we use those terms, and we'd probably use them very inaccurately, but... But the the idea is that there's not a consistency of of response. It's you're constantly hoping for forgiveness, but perceiving that the deity is angry because you're suffering. Do you remember from reading some of the Psalms? Does it sound like that? Um, can you give me an example? Always go to Psalm 90. Okay, go to Psalm 90. That's the one I remember from last week. <laughs> right. I like, yeah, I was uh, talking about wrathful in the Psalms. Uh-huh. Go to Psalm 90. Let's go back to Psalm 90. Uh, Tara, why don't you read for us again that Psalm? I don't know if you did. You read it last week? <laughs> Possibly. <laughs> Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, Return to dust, you mortals. 
A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass in the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to seventy years, or eighty, if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. So what can we say about the similarities? I think the least we can say is that they, we sh- the Bible writers, the, the people who wrote the Psalms, share the same perspective of deity as Babylon. Is that, is that a fair assessment? That they have this, this common background of, of perception of divine anger. If something goes wrong, if I'm sick, uh, my health is failing, I'm suffering, uh, Maybe maybe someone in my family has died, or I'm suffering from misfortune. Maybe maybe my prosperity has ended and I'm, I'm poverty-stricken, I'm in debt, I'm threatened with becoming a slave. Whatever it is I'm suffering is because God's angry, or because Yahweh is angry. Uh, that is the prevailing doctrine of the ancient Near East. So that's I, that, that's the least we can say about these similarities. Uh, which do you think? Which kind of belief system do you think began first, the Bible or the Babylonian? Babylonian. Babylonian. Let's do a little history of Babylon. The earliest civilization that we have records from. I mean, there's a. There's a, a civilizations before, I believe, that we have only artwork from. We don't have anything written because it was before writing was invented. But uh, writing was invented, we think, by the Sumerians and possibly the Akkadian peoples. We're not sure exactly who came first, but the first records we have that are written are from the Sumerians. And the Sumerians date from the beginning of the third millennium. So around 2900 BC. Um, And almost as soon as you have records, you have kingship. In fact, uh, we have kingship before there are written records. Because in the artwork, there's, there's a persona with a certain hat that designates that he's a, at least a chieftain, if not a king. So we have have this, and as, as soon as we end up in writing so that we can define anything and, and really assess words, uh, we have kingship and we have divine anger. 
And I've been doing a, a study where I've been reading, I've been reading them in English first before I start heading for the Akkadian uh, texts. But um, I've been reading texts uh, from early periods and, and trying to do kind of a historical overview. And what I find is that the more kings are angry, the more gods are too. In fact, if you go, I don't know if you have uh, the previous document that we're working on, God's Wrath in the Bible, uh, number 6 on page 12 of that document. The document is entitled God's Wrath in the Bible. It's the one we were looking at before I gave you this more recent one. Page 12. We're going to be coming back to this document as we finish this one. Number 6, the many entries containing... Akkadian words for anger and wrath pertaining to the gods and kings suggest a very real perceptual basis for divine anger and the rise of kingship. A study of these entries show that the more power kings had in ancient Mesopotamia, the more entries occur with angry kings. The peak seems to be in the Neo-Assyrian period. Likewise, gods were seen as increasingly angry during those periods. So in the Neo-Assyrian periods, the gods were perceived as increasingly angry, and also in the Neo-Babylonian periods. What was going on in the Neo-Assyrian and Neo-Babylonian periods? This is first millennium now. You've jumped from 2900 uh, to actually probably more accurately 2200 to 999 or forward. So 999 to 680, uh, 580. What happens during those periods, particularly in the 8th, 7th, and 6th centuries? The 700s, 800s, uh, 600s, and 500s. Remember from biblical history? We're taking over the ancient period. This is the rise of empiricism of conquest, wide-scale conquest. In order to appreciate it, you need to go back to what is considered the Middle Bronze period, the Middle Bronze, Late Bronze periods. These are archaeological terms for the period just before the conquest of Canaan. The period just before the conquest of Canaan for several hundred years, was what's called, has been called the Age of Diplomacy. And this was an era where kings tried to work together in harmony and defend one another against enemies. Uh, occasionally, they apparently did have their battles, but it was more fending off the enemy and keeping your homeland and your territory safe. It was more of a defense kind of thing. That's, that's uh, the time period just before the conquest. By the time the monarchy comes into play in Israel, you have the rise of Assyria. And Assyria's policy wasn't, they weren't content with just keeping their borders safe and maybe having a few vassals around them. They went far and wide to conquer nations and take hundreds of thousands of prisoners. I just read a text that had to do with Sargon the Great. Uh, this is Sarg- I'm sorry, not Sargon the Great, Sargon II. Uh, Sargon II is an Assyrian king who's, who is the father of Sennacherib. The slightly less great. 
He, he probably wasn't less great. Oh. <laughs> but Sargon the Great is the first great king of Sumerian, <laughs> Akkadian vintage way, way back. Uh, Sargon II, uh, there's a letter written to him where he writes a letter in which it is stated that 1,119 men survived out of 5,000 persons. This is out of a conquest. They conquered a nation and apparently took men, women, and children. And out of 5,000 persons, 1,119 men survived, which is a high number. Um, and it doesn't tell you, of course, how many of those 5,000 were women and children. But these were people prisoners that probably were forced to march across the hot Iraqi sun, a desert. And, and it got hot in Iraq. It gets hot now. You can get up to 125 degrees quite easily in the summertime. And these people have forced to march. Now, presumably, the con- kinds of conquests were usually in the spring. That's when kings would go to war. Even the Bible says that. So they would mar- march them probably in the springtime when it wasn't quite so hot. But still, can you imagine marching from, say, Palestine, from Jerusalem, all the way to Mesopotamia? That's, that's, that's a terribly costly journey, and people are going to die. Because he can't supply enough water for all of them in the first place. So this is a record of, oh, well, we got a lot of people out of that. 1,119 out of 5,000, and it isn't clear whether those 5,000 included women as well. But it's like, oh, okay. (laughs) It, It doesn't matter about the people that die. We got this many out of it. People are reduced to property that you can own. Uh, so that gives you some background of the power that these kings exercised. And Sennacherib, of course, went after every little city-state and country and nation around him that he could. Uh, he went after the Elamites. He went after uh, the Syrians. He went after, I think, the kingdom of Mitanni. Uh He went after Jerusalem, of course. And he went after Samaria. And, and there's documentation in his correspondence of Samaria. So this is, this is the background. You have an explosion of power, and it's power that, that destroys people. It's power that's brutal and cruel. Consequently, during that period, gods are really angry. So there's a direct correlation I would like to propose to you that most of the Psalms that, and I don't, I I think I said this last week, that Psalm 90, I do not believe was written by Moses. If it was, it was greatly changed because Moses lived to be 120 years and this Psalm talks about living only 70 or 80 at the most. Uh, This is is not Mosaic period. This This is probably... Exilic, or pre, just pre-exilic. Do you remember that I suggested to you that there, God is never angry once in Genesis? And Genesis is about a period of time that's partly the age of diplomacy, in which kings are the shepherd of the people, 
and and their role is to render justice, and justice is equity, equality, uh, defending the defenseless, basically. You don't have these major players of power. It's interesting that God is not angry once in Genesis. And even in Exodus, where you have all this power from Pharaoh oppressing the Israelite slaves, the only the times where God is angry are times of where He's about to lose His people, and it's over the worship of the golden calf and over Moses at the burning bush. And we noted that the first time God is angry in, the, in canonical scripture is when He, uh, when Moses refuses to go and says, "Oh Lord, please send someone else." And God says, "All right, have your way." Is not Aaron your brother coming? In other words, I'll give you Aaron. And you can have your way. On, uh, on Sinai, of course, as we noted, things are a little muddier. But it all has to do with how you read the text. And if you read the text as a kind of angry God motif, God really turns it, in a sense, on his head. Because he, dis- he, he really explains his character to Moses in the end. And, and wrath is not part of it. Directly. So... Where do you have most of the anger of the of divine anger in the Old Testament? What books make God out to be the most angry? Prophets, maybe. The prophets. And when do the prophets live? Post exile. Uh, some of them do. Pre exile. Most of them pre exilic, but they live during the monarchy. Now you have a king. Now you have power. Um, let's look at Proverbs 16, verse 14. Proverbs 16, verse 14. And Bianca, why don't you read that? A king's wrath is a messenger of death, and whoever is wise will appease it. Does that make sense? After what we've talked about? King's wrath is a messenger of death, and who is wise will appease it. Came across a letter this week. A servant of the king, probably Sargon, was writing to the king that one of the men that the king had entrusted into his care, I think, had escaped. And he wrote to the king, I know my lord the king will kill me when he hears of this. King's wrath is a messenger of death, and he who is wise will appease it. And, and the letter, unfortunately, was broken, so I don't know how he went about appeasing him. But let's let's be honest: in an ancient Near Eastern context, your perceptions of deity are going to be shaped by the perceptions of the king, are they not? Especially in a in a setting that in the first millennium is so bureaucratic and so hierarchical. Uh, with extreme power at the top. The king can put anyone to death he pleases and no one can question him. No one can drag him into court and tell him he's wrong. Uh, He can do anything he wants. Now, he does have to be careful about not offending the gods. The gods are above him. They are the ultimate hierarchy. And so he has to be careful of that. But beyond that, somebody disobeys him, somebody does something he doesn't like, he has the right and he has the privilege of destroying them. Do you, 
since you're talking about the picture of God being uh, drawn from like kings, today do you think that could be, since we see God as the father, do you think that we could, there's a connection in how we draw our picture of God from our parents and things like that? Or other yes, I think I think though I think most people with an angry God <coughs> picture have been abused as children. Not all, but most. Or they have had harsh discipline, and that makes me more sympathetic to them because I I recognize it is very hard. Parents stand in the God, in the place of God to their children, right? Uh, it's very hard to disengage oneself from a picture of God that's formatted by our parents. And, and maybe that's one of the reasons why in the United States and in, in other cu- cultures that are democratically based, our tendency is to view God as a father rather than as a king. Now, there is, there are whole sectors of Christianity in America who really intensely admire the sovereign God. The doctrine of the sovereignty of God is, is very important to that segment. And so is God's wrath, equally important to that segment. And that segment of Christianity uh, is extremely zealous to protect the belief in never-burning hell. So, so all of these things are interconnected. What I'm trying to suggest is that the idea of angry gods existed before Israel. It's part and parcel of their culture to believe this way. And God is slowly trying to help them get them to see him as not that kind of a God. And and one way we can look at this is to see the history of his dealings with Israel. He never intended that they fight their way into Canaan. Once they picked up arms, their whole picture of God was endangered. And God had to work with them where they were, speak a language they can understand. Once they have a king, he didn't want them to have a king. He wanted to be their king because he would exemplify the kind of kingship he wanted them to have. And also, he wanted them to protect them from a a kingly picture of himself. Once they had a king, they stepped even further down into the wrong picture of him. And so the prophets who are come out of this culture of monarchical power and and anger are going to speak that language. And they have to. In order for the people to relate to them and take God seriously, they have to speak this angry God kind of language. To me, this helps explain the whole Old Testament. And... um, I would like, well, let's ask this question while we're going back to, um, let's go back to Psalm 90. Did you sense any differences between Psalm 90 and the great hymn to Nabu? And I realize this isn't quite fair. We don't have the entire hymn (laughs) because it's fragmentary. But maybe any of the hymns that we have... 
Can you see any differences? Psalm 90, or the Psalms in general, maybe it would help us to read the one Marduk. Um, Bianca, why don't you read that one? Lord Neil, that is Marduk as supreme God, prince surpassing of perception. Battle formation and warfare are in the hand of the sage of the gods, Marduk. He at whose warfare the heavens quake, at whose cry the depths are rolled, at whose blade the edge of the gods retreat. There was none who came forth against his furious onslaught. Awe-inspiring Lord, none like whom has arisen among the gods, stately in his progress through the shining firmament. Heavy his responsibilities in Akur, the cherished dwelling. To the ill wind his weapons are flashing. Tortuous mountains are destroyed by his flame. The surging oceans tosses up its waves. Adapted slightly from Religion in Ancient Mesopotamia. Nothing there about compassion, is there? Nothing in there that would seem personal. If you think about the Psalms as a whole, one thing that seems to stand out to me is that they're very personal. They're usually between the petitioner and God uh, with a very a sense of closeness, a sense of trust. Whereas the Babylonian prayers don't give you that sense of personal closeness and trust. We won't read all of these. But if you scan through this Shamash hymn, which I only gave you excerpts here. It's a very long hymn. Uh, there's, there's lines that stand out. You, Shamash, are the regulator of the light for all. Your fierce glare covers the land. Before you both wicked and just kneel down, no one goes down to the depths without you. You clear up the case of the wicked and criminal. Uh, you rescue from the brink of hell the innocent one tied up in a lawsuit. What you pronounce in just verdict, O Shamash. Yeah, you understand Shamash is the sun god and the, and the god of justice. Uh, you show the roguish judge the inside of a jail. <laughs> he who takes a fee but does not carry through, you make him bear the punishment. The one who receives no fee but takes up the case of the weak is pleasing to Shamash. He will make long his life. So there's there's evidence of some compassion, but uh, he also has raging fierce light. So there's this blend, again, of compassion and or forgiveness and this very fierce anger. Is there any difference between that and the Psalms of the Hebrew Bible? Seems similar, doesn't it? Is it possible that the Psalms in the Hebrew Bible portray God's anger as due to sin directly? And there's a sense of we know what our sins are. Whereas in Mesopotamia, they never knew what they did to anger the gods. And that comes through, by the way, in a number of places. It, if you look back at... Um, the first, very first hymn, I will praise the Lord of Wisdom on the second page. That hymn, and I don't have the lines here, but that hymn expresses that the ways of the gods are remote and, and you cannot know what you've done to anger them. 
You, it's, it's, with the Babylonians, it was constantly guesswork. And the, the, that is one of the things that led the Babylonians to have divination, to do divination. Divination was done for the purpose of ascertaining signs of divine disfavor or favor. That's all, that was the bedrock basis of divination. It was detecting signs of divine disfavor or favor. Because if the gods were angry with you and were going to punish you, the, then that would give you the ability to try to manipulate them, try to assuage their anger, try to get in good with them. You don't have that sense in the, in the Psalms of the Hebrew Bible. The sense you get is, I, I believe God is punishing me because I'm, I'm doing wrong. Uh, because I'm suffering. And the suffering is perceived across the board that God is angry. That's in keeping with the ancient Near East. That is not going to change in the Hebrew Bible except in the book of Job. But I shouldn't say just except in the book of Job. There are some places that give you a window in a different viewpoint. But uh, basically the, the basic premise of most Israelites is that we suffer, God is angry. But there's no sense of if we can manipulate him, if we can just appease him, assuage him, he will turn away his anger. It's more the sense of if I, if I repent and come back to him, everything will be well. And, and I'm, I'm reading into the Psalms the prophets because the prophets really give you that sense. If, if God is angry and the prophets come back to him, what he wants is repentance. Let's see if we can find this in Ezekiel. I'm going to try Ezekiel 18. Uh, 1830. And by the way, this whole chapter is on how a parent shall not suffer for the sins of their child and the child shall not suffer for the sins of the parent. That only the person who sins will die. And if you go up, let's actually start earlier. I'm, I'm looking for it here. Okay, verse 23. Why don't you read, Jonathan? And read, uh, read all the way to the end of the chapter. Do I take any pleasures in the death of the wicked, declares the Sovereign Lord? Rather, I am not pleased when they turn from their way. Rather, am I not pleased when they turn from their ways and live? But if a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin and does the same detestable thing the wicked person does, will they live? None of the righteous things that person has done will be remembered. Because of the unfaithfulness they are guilty, of, and because of the sins they have committed, they will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not just. Here, you Israelites, is my way unjust? Is it not your ways that are unjust? If a righteous person turns from their righteousness and commits sin, they will die for it. Because the sin they have committed, because of the sin they have committed, they will die. But if a wicked person turns away from the wickedness they have just committed and does what is right, just and right, they will save their life. Because they consider all of the offenses they have committed and turn away from them, that person will surely live. They will not die. Yet the Israelites say, The way of the Lord is not just. Are my ways unjust, people of Israel? Is it not your ways that are unjust? Therefore, you, therefore, you Israelites, I will judge each of you according to your own ways, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent. Turn away from your offenses. Then sin will not be your downfall. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and a new and get a new heart, a new spirit. Why will you die, people of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Sovereign Lord. Repent and live. 
So this is this is the overriding message I think of the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Israelites are very conscious that if God is angry, it's because they've sinned, and that what He doesn't want is appeasement. What He wants is repentance, and He wants it from the heart. And what I see happening in Ezekiel, this is a, an exilic prophet. He's prophesying in Babylon. And God is the angriest of all the prophets in Ezekiel. Ezekiel comes the closest to talking about God satisfying his rage by wetting his sword. And, and, and all of that is really exa- um, concretely expressed in the Babylonian, in, in the conquest of, of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar. Um, it, this is not something God is doing. But it's perceived by Ezekiel and by the people that God is doing it. So what they see is not what the Babylonians see. The Babylonians see that sin is doing something to anger the gods. Israelites see sin, and, and the point Ezekiel is trying to make is you need to see sin as something that destroys yourself and that God is trying to rescue you from. And once you get that perception, maybe then we can say, now, is God really angry in the sense that kings get angry with their subjects who disobey them? Is God really angry with you, or is he grieved because he's going to lose you if you don't repent? It's a very different trajectory. And and that's one of the things more and more of us are coming to conclude in the Bible. There is a trajectory toward the New Testament in the Old Testament. And we have to follow that trajectory to where it leads rather than to get stuck in the Babylonian model uh, that never changes. In fact, only deepens uh, where God's getting increasingly angry. If you look through the rest of these, and we're not going to, we're gonna, not going to spend any more time on this until we get to Botero. But if you look through the rest of these, uh, gods are angry, sometimes they're merciful, but rarely is, are, is their compassion extolled. And one other thing to bring to the table is the fact that I mentioned how the, the Psalms are, are personally invested in Yahweh. They see him as their personal deity. In Babylonia, because of the plethora of deities, they had a personal God, but that was it. In, there was no deity who took the Babylonians and said, you are my people and I will be your God. There's no, no hint of that in the ancient Near East. Israel stands alone as the one people who have a God who has a people. So uh, we don't have time to read Botero here on the next to the last page of this document. I think what we'll do next time is finish reading that discuss it further, maybe wrap up and move on to the New Testament and divine anger. And the New Testament is going to be refreshing. (laughs) Okay, let's have closing prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for the fact that you have given us documents in the ancient world that help us to orient ourselves to where the people lived and where they thought and how they viewed the deity in the ancient Near East, in the land of the Hebrew Bible. We pray that we may use these documents wisely 
that we may not see the Bible as just another Babylonian book, but that we may see the differences that make the unique contribution the Bible has to make about your character. Bless us and may we exemplify who you really are in our daily lives. In Jesus' name, amen.